0: On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin, we are talking about Christmas shopping. Yes, I know it's only October, but you may want to start thinking about it because shortages in the supply chain mean you may need to start now to get what you want. We're talking about athletes who may become Olympians, even though they are not involved in the sports that they might do in the Olympics. How does this work? Well, you're going to want to stick around and find out. We're going to be talking about new property assessments that are coming out soon that will probably affect your property taxes. Why are some politicians upset about this? We'll tell you. The equalization referendum in Alberta has been done. No surprise, they don't like it. What does this mean? Is the federal government even going to pay attention? We'll talk about that. And we're going to be chatting about the Raptors, a soda tax all kinds of other stuff. Stick around.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We learned the other day that property assessments will be coming out now after the provincial election. Property assessments, of course, having an impact on your taxes, or at least theoretically. So why does it matter when? Why does it matter that this might be after the provincial election? Well, There is a municipal election that will follow. We're in election season. We had the federal election, provincial election in June, municipal election coming up in October. And it seems anyway that some municipal politicians are skittish, concerned, pick your word, that since house prices have spiked, as we all know, Assessments that might show or will show giant valuation increases that could lead to big property tax increases could land on their laps and make voters a little frantic, a little skittish, a little angry, perhaps. I want to bring in Jeff Gray, Queen's Park reporter for The Glow and Mail, to talk about this. Jeff, how are you today? Good. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks for doing this. Uh, As far as a little background goes here, how often do we get these provincial assessments? Are these annually?
2: No, no, they, these happen every, supposed to happen every four years. So the last one was in 2016. And then the the value that impact uh, says your house is worth, that's phased in over four years. So the next one was supposed to happen in 2020, but we're in the pandemic. So the government put that on hold and they put it on hold again uh, this year. And they've now been talking to municipalities and uh, businesses and others to sort of figure out how to restart this thing. Um, and as you said off the top there, everybody knows that uh, property prices have shot up dramatically. So these assessments probably, you know, you mentioned people being skittish. Well, they shouldn't be surprised. But regardless, when it actually comes in the mail, uh, people start to get worried about their property taxes. And the theory then is hold it a second, province. You want to put off uh, putting out these assessments of uh, you know asking impact which is this arm's length corporation that actually does all this stuff you want to put this off until after your election uh, and some municipalities are concerned but you're going to do it in the middle of ours <laughs> so uh and of course then everybody points their finger at whichever government they're most angry at uh you know when when they if they get worried about their their property tax bill shooting up
0: i mean does this does this automatically mean if your assessment goes up and again, I can't imagine there's a home out there that won't see an increase over the course of six years I don't know what home that would be unless it's been knocked down but i mean if you own a home and that assessment goes up, is it a guarantee that your property taxes go up
2: no and that's the i mean property taxes are uh i mean I covered Toronto City Hall for a long time earlier in my career and uh you know property taxes are so confusing and so hard to understand but essentially if your property value goes up more than others uh in your municipality then you're going to pay more of the of the of the share um, i mean generally we are charged property tax based on the value of our property so but you're right that it is not a straight line it is quite possible that that, that you'll you'll seal an increase but it won't mean much in the way of an increase to your property tax bill uh, of course, municipalities facing the financial challenges that they were facing even before the pandemic, and now with the the costs they've had to incur in the pandemic, are going to be looking for more revenue and and you know, that's when the yeah. council votes to, uh, you know, increase the rate. And so that that's going to be part of the part of the discussion as well.
0: That, you see, you, uh, you brilliant point that you just made because I'm looking at this going, okay, you know what? Councils could look at this and say, okay, we're going to show some restraint because re- things are going up in price and everyone's being hit a little hard. Or councils who are strapped for cash could look at this as an opportunity in a windfall and say, all right, property tax is up for everyone. Let's bring in the dough.
2: Yeah. I mean, at, at the at the start of the process, the municipality itself doesn't get anything out of this because the, it's like a, a bowl of water or a bowl of jello. It just sort of jiggles around different, and <laughs> different property tax I can't, there's no metaphor that actually explains property taxes well, but you know it, it means that some will pay, pay a bit less, some will pay a bit more, but the overall amount the municipality gets at the start of the process is supposed to be the same, except for new assessments. Uh, so you build a condo, uh, you know the the, the the new subdivision built that 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 actually adds to the bottom line.
0: Jeff, this is where this gets really um, difficult for some people. Is you know you're a senior who bought your house fifty years ago for twenty thousand dollars. You have lived there your entire life. Due to nothing really that you've done, the house is now worth 500000 or $800,000, but you're on a fixed income. And all of a sudden, the new rate comes out. And, you know, this is the very definition of house poor if you're one of those people who's stuck in that position. You've got this incredible asset, but you don't necessarily have the ability to pay for it.
2: Yeah. And I mean, that, that is the essential problem with, with property taxes. They, um, and it's not just seniors, although that is, that is often the discussion. Uh, in toronto there are various programs that allow people to defer uh property taxes and things like that with they're if they're in that situation that you, that you describe although i think you have to be fairly uh you know in 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 financial straits to take advantage of them but um uh, you know the system also sort of stratifies neighborhoods too not just with seniors but if you don't make uh if you yeah if you bought your house a long time ago maybe you inherited it or something and you your family's lived in the neighborhood for a long time, but you don't uh, make the kind of money that the people who are now moving into this neighborhood with these property prices make. Uh, you're going to look to move somewhere else where, where you don't have to pay as much property tax. Uh, and and then never mind the inequity between cities that have really powerful uh, commercial tax bases they can draw on um, You know that that, that make things uh, different, too, as far as who pays the tax bill. You know, in Toronto, the... Uh, there's a very there's a lot of uh, t- a lot of tax burden is on is on big uh, companies.
0: Uh, we we got to run. We have about ten seconds here. But the, the idea that this could fall in the middle of a municipal election and per, and municipal politicians are nervous. Should they be? I mean, is this one of the things that voters would get angry at them, or mm, do you not think so?
2: Well, it's so I mean, with with you know, people say, oh, it's MPAC. Oh, it's oh, it's the prov- it's the province. Oh, it's not us. I mean. You, Get all this, this sort of back and forth uh, discussion of property taxes. I think, you know, politicians are always going to be skittish about things like this. Obviously, b- at both levels, there's some concern. Um, it is well worth noting that the minister told us yesterday, "Look, guys, we haven't made a decision. We're still mm-hmm. talking to
0: municipalities. We're gonna
2: we're gonna figure this out. So we'll have to see where it goes."
0: Jeff Gray, Queens Park reporter with the Globe and Mail. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so
2: much. You're listening to the
1: Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about some shopping issues for a moment because you may remember a few years ago, maybe more than a few years ago now that I think of it, but nonetheless, a few years ago, Tickle Me Elmo was the hottest Canadian Christmas gift, not just Canadian, the hottest Christmas gift around. Remember that one? Of course you do. And do you remember what happened? as a result you remember the the fights that shoppers were having the almost brawls in the stores to get their hands on this well frankly stupid toy (laughs) well i'm not saying we're heading for tickle me elmo fights again but there is according to reports going to be a shortage of some toys and some other things this christmas shopping season why well Let me bring in Michelle Wasilishkin, who's the National Spokesperson for the Retail Council of Canada. Michelle, how are you today?
3: I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Really appreciate you doing this. Um, Should, I hate to bring up this example because it's probably the worst one, but should we be bracing for Tickle Me Elmo wars all over again?
3: I remember Tickle Me Elmo. Um, (laughs) So as a uh, retail sector, we have a number of challenges right now. We have some supply chain challenges, some labor shortages. And so as an industry, we're not back to pre-pandemic normalcy. Uh, We are expecting uh, the availability of certain items might be tighter than in years past, particularly in November and December, as people began shopping for the holiday season. And so there is going to be less choice for some items. But, you know, I do want to stress during our conversation today that for many products, there are options but for some items certainly there there could be a difficulty in securing them
0: the the areas that we're hearing that are going to be the ones that may be a little bit tighter toys appliances furniture uh shoes clothing Uh, i mean these are things that are that are popular but as you say there are options so is the suggestion that you may not get the brand you want but there will be other brands that would be available
3: uh, for some of those products, absolutely. I mean, for consumers, um, some of them are seeing that deliveries are taking longer than they would have pre COVID. And so we are seeing that buyers are needing to choose a substitute, um, you know, a different model or a different brand. And so, as my colleague says, perhaps instead of buying the red shirt, you know, you're purchasing the green shirt, (laughs) or maybe you're putting off that purchase altogether for the time being. Um, But certainly, you know, consumers that plan ahead and shop early will increase their chance of finding the product and the brand that they want.
0: Okay, so very broadly, and I think most people have now by now heard about supply chain issues, you just referenced it. So, so broadly, that's the cause of this. But a little more specifically, why are certain things going to be more difficult to get this year?
3: Uh, well, there's a couple of different challenges when you're talking about supply chain. Um, you know, we do live in a global society, and so for many products, parts. Are often sourced overseas, and um, you know, in Canada, we're hopeful that uh, we will soon return to um, a normal society uh, in the not so distant future um, from COVID. But that's not necessarily the case in different parts of the world, such as China and Vietnam, where ports are often, um, you know, they've been. We've seen recently where the ports were shut down for uh, in a week, more than a week, in order to deal with COVID outbreaks, and so that uh, creates a substantial delay. Uh, globally. Um, We've also seen issues with ports. Um, There's a backlog of boats in some areas waiting to have product unloaded. Those freight and shipping costs have increased dramatically throughout COVID, and so there's massive challenges there. I'm sure some of your viewers have seen some of the media footage where we have hundreds of container vessels um, currently mm. parked outside of the ports in los angeles waiting to be out unloaded uh, a colleague of mine was speaking to um, a designer just yesterday and her entire stock of new handbags is on one of those containers and so you can imagine the implications of that and then the other challenge is really unusual demand patterns and you know our lives have changed we're staying home more often and with many people still working from home their purchases and their purchasing patterns have changed over the past year and so retailers are really still kind of grappling with the ongoing question of those temporary versus permanent consumer trends and so all of those things less worker shortages have led to a situation where you know, retailers are really um, needing to um, do things a little bit differently. A lot of them have spent considerable um, time over the past month and really over the past year putting other contingency measures in place in an effort to address those supply challenges that we are seeing right now.
0: If it, I think everyone understands at least the most basic of economics. If supply is down and demand is up, that usually turns into higher prices. Should we be expecting higher prices this Christmas season?
3: Uh, I mean, in some cases, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's, that's going to be a possibility. So most retailers um, have been successful in absorbing some of the Increased costs from transportation, delays in getting those containers, and some of the other issues that we talked about. Um, but, you know, of course, it, it's not sustainable for the long term. Uh, it depends on how long we're in, uh, in the situation for. We did a survey with some of our members uh, a short while ago, and the expectation is that we will remain in a situation with some supply challenges um, going into 2022 and beyond. Um, For some retailers, I saw um, the other day uh, two large, well, one large and one mid in particular sent notes out to their customers referencing that they expect, um, you know, product delays for upwards of a year. And so Mm. in some cases, we should see a return to normality in, you know, Q1, Q2 of 2022. But certainly for some categories, it could take much longer than that.
0: Be prepared, I guess, get your Christmas shopping done early and, uh, don't wait for the tickle me Elmo at the last minute. Michelle Wassilish national spokesperson retail council of Canada. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for taking a few minutes.
3: Thank you very much.
0: I don't know what, uh, what that means that you have to hurry out and buy now, but you know, there's something supposed to be almost fun and sacred. And I use the word sacred, very not literally. About Christmas shopping, isn't it? But you go out there, you buy the stuff, you think of the person you want, you wait till the last minute. If you're like many of us and then go to the mall and try and find a parking spot and get angry when someone cuts in front of you and then you rage shop. (laughs) Anyone else have this experience with Christmas shopping last minute? Yeah. But you know, for those of you, what the, the message here, the moral of this story is for those of you, and you're out there, for those of you who are those who do your Christmas shopping early because you're organized and you are on top of things and you know what you're doing, well, congratulations, you're going to win Christmas this year. The rest of us, you're going to be giving gifts that are the last thing on the shelf at the Hallmark store. You're going to get some sort of Christmas tree ornament for your loved one because that's all there is. It's going to be a nightmare On Halloween, What does that show? The Tim Burton movie? You're going to get one of those baubles for your Christmas tree because there will be nothing else left on the shelves, but hey, at least it'll show something. Love or something. I'm not sure what.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about athletes for a second because I really believe that a good athlete is a good athlete. I believe that if you're good at basketball you're probably in good shape and you're probably pretty coordinated. And that means you could probably take up volleyball or baseball or soccer or whatever else doesn't mean you'll necessarily be as good in these sports as in your specialty. But here's the question. What if you just haven't discovered your sport? What if you're better at another sport than you are in the one you think you're really good at? That's the concept in theory. Anyway, behind the RBC training ground, you take superb athletes You break down their strengths, and you see if there's something they might be good at in hopes of finding future Olympians. Uh, Stony Creek's Talia Hoffman has been identified as one of those people who might be a possibility. She joins us now. Talia, thanks for doing this today.
4: Hi, Scott. No worries. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, I mean, this is such a fascinating concept, and I know it's been done forever. It's it's more organized now, but for a little bit of background, you are an athlete. What is your sport? What would you identify you as your great sport?
4: Uh, So already I play rugby, so I play 15s and 7s.
0: Okay, so you're, and you know what, I'm not asking you to brag, but I will. You play college, you play university rugby, you're good at rugby. I mean, you're obviously a very good player.
4: I guess so, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) we'll, We'll give you that one, we'll assume so. So how then do you decide, what was it that made you decide to say, you know what, maybe I should go out for this RBC training ground, maybe there's something I also would be good at. What made you think to do that?
4: Uh, well, it was actually more of a push from one of my coaches. I During like the pandemic, when there wasn't really training in Ontario, I went out, out east to Halifax to train. And there was an RBC training ground combine there. And one of our coaches really just pushed to try out for it and just thought that um, a few of the athletes would be good candidates for it. Uh, so I guess I'm grateful for that.
0: Was the idea then that you were thinking, hey, i got to find some way to get to the Olympics, or was this just, hey, it's on, so let's give it a whirl and see what happens? Uh,
4: Truthfully, I think it was just, uh, oh, like I'm just going to do this and kind of see where it goes.
0: I mean, it is something, and you probably are very aware of this, it is something that we have seen athletes cross over. The one that obviously comes to mind around here, we've had a lot from Hamilton. We've had a bunch of football players that have become bobsledders that seems to be a kind of a natural fit. Had you ever thought of another sport, an Olympic sport, that you might be good at? Or have you even contemplated what you might be good at?
4: Uh, honestly, no, I hadn't contemplated it at all. A girl that I used to play rugby with, she did this a few years ago, and now she's on the national team for bobsled as well. So it's uh, you would never really think that that's like the same translation, but uh, I guess there's so many sports out there that you wouldn't even consider that you might be good at. So it's kind of interesting to see.
0: Well, because I mean, look, you're an athlete, but probably you've not played every single sport who has. So, so there's something probably out there that you have never even contemplated. You might be good at.
4: Yeah. Especially something like bobsled. Like there's very few people that have had the opportunity to try bobsled. Right. Right. So I think people wouldn't even know they're going to be good at it until, until you do until it happens.
0: Do you agree? I mean, it, my theory I offered off the top, and my theory could be right or it could be wrong, but I, I really believe that athletes are athletes, that there are things within each sport that can translate, and if you just find that thing, it can really work. Do you agree with that idea?
4: I think a lot of sports, yeah, like power and speed are, are so like uh, transferable to many sports, but there's some things like, like specific skill that just really needs to be fine-tuned, but I guess with enough time, some really athletic people can pick up any skill.
0: But the way they do this and the idea behind this training ground is they're, they're essentially breaking down your skills or your strengths into like the most basic element, right? They're trying to find out about your speed, Mm -hmm. about your strength, about, so that they're not necessarily, as I understand it, looking for a sport to plop you into. They're looking to see if, you know, let's say bobsleigh requires power and speed. Let's find someone who's got great power and speed. If something else requires something else, some combination, that's what they're doing, right? They're trying to just find the raw elements.
4: Exactly. Yeah. There's maybe like six or seven, uh, tests, like testing elements that you'll go through. And then I think they'll analyze all that and then kind of see where you fit.
0: Now, have you done this yet or are you in the process of doing it?
4: I've done like an initial round and then there's like going to be a second round that I'll do within the next month.
0: Okay. So what were some of the things that they asked you to do then? What were some of the drills or skills or whatever?
4: Uh, there's like a 40 meter sprint, obviously to test for speed. There's a uh, vertical jump, and I think that's to test for like uh, pow, like power. There's some, there's like an endurance test, so that's like an endurance running test, and sometimes it's like a bike test. Um, there was some like strength elements, like a grip test, and like where you pull on a bar that like gives resistance, and it's to see how much resistance you can handle, I guess. Yeah, and, things like that.
0: And did you? Do they tell you after? where you stand? Like, you know, you were fantastic at this or this wasn't your greatest one. Do you know where you rank in those?
4: No, honestly, no, I never found out like any of that, but, um, I just found out like I got an email from cycling Canada that was like, Oh, like you've been identified as like potential to be good in this sport. But, um, but like I never found out any results, but interesting. Cause I would never have thought cycling.
0: You've never been a cyclist.
4: No, never. <laughs>
0: do, I mean, do you even ride a bike?
4: on no barely
0: (laughs) well but i mean i'm looking okay so if you're going to do cycling you need leg strength rugby would fit with that and you probably need good endurance depending on what kind of cycling you're doing uh you must obviously have measured pretty well in that one as well i mean would that have been something you would have thought that leg power and endurance were your things
4: Mm, not no honestly I, i wouldn't have but um i mean cyclists are so strong so i'll take it as a compliment.
0: When you're doing the tests for this, is it high pressure? Like, are they trying to let you know that you get one shot at this and you better not mess it up or you are going to miss out? Like, are they trying to replicate a high pressure situation?
4: Uh, No, not really. Like, honest, and in a lot of high-level sports, uh, doing testing elements like this is something that kind of happens semi-frequently. So it's all things that I've done before. So it's just something that, like, you're just testing another time, but just in a little bit different of an environment.
0: As I say, I find the the concept of this, I find it, I mean, it's, it's very smart. It's very clever, but it's also very, you know, it's it's very cool to look for people who have never done these things like you with cycling. Perhaps if they came to you and they said, look, we we know you've never been a cyclist, but we've identified your strengths as something that could really work for this. Is that, would you be willing to drop rugby and give a shot at cycling? If they said, we think you can make the Olympics.
4: Oh, I don't. I don't know and that's like a tough question because I love rugby right so I think that would be a very circumstantial decision.
0: Mm. How you did this as you say kind of on a on a whim but are the Olympics something that are the highest pedestal for you that you would do almost anything to get to or I mean where does that sort of stand? Where does that register?
4: Um I don't I don't know yet. I think Uh, it's never really been like a realistic goal for me, so I hadn't put much thought into it. It's obviously like an incredible experience, but, um, I'm just like happy to, to play sports like where I'm at right now and just see where that goes.
0: I love the idea. As I say, Natalia. you may have to get yourself fitted for a bicycle and some, uh, some bicycle shoes, who knows? But, uh, you know, we, we may see you in the Olympics and then you're going to say, oh yeah, all along I knew I was supposed to be a cyclist, right?
4: (laughs) Maybe, maybe not.
0: Talia Hoffman, it is called RBC Training Ground. Talia is one of those from around here who has been identified as someone who we may see in the Olympics in a sport that she never would have contemplated. We will see. Talia, listen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
4: Thanks so much, Scott.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Two days ago while you were sleeping, Albertans were having an election. Two days? Three days now? I don't know. This week, let's go Let's go with this week, that's safe. And in this election, there was a referendum that was on the ballot, and according to most reports, and we go by the reports because the numbers, the final numbers have not yet been released, it appears that Albertans voted very strongly in favor of eliminating Canada's equalization program. This is a pretty big deal because Alberta has long been a payer rather than a beneficiary of equalization programs. And Albertans seem to have... Some support for their new position, not their new position, their newly minted position across the country. There was a poll done by Manu Public Opinion while this election was happening, and it found 66% of Canadians said aspects of the equalization program were unfair to Alberta, particularly the part that demands they pay other provinces while other provinces are fighting against pipelines being built, which would allow Alberta to boost its economy. want to bring in Tim Powers on this one. Tim is the chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data. Tim, how are you this morning?
5: Oh, you know, thrilled, Scott, to talk about equalization at 7.35, <laughs> 7.38 in the morning. You got a Newfoundlander, we get PhDs, man, in equalization. I, I, sadly, I know more about equalization than I ever wanted. To.
0: Well, you know, uh, and I'm not sure that everybody does, though. I think there are certain parts of the country that really are very much aware of what goes on in others. It sort of just slides slides by. But I, I, I'm looking at this vote, and I'm looking at this result, assuming, again, that the reports we're yep. getting are accurate. And I'm thinking, this is is all really nice. Now, does that mean the Canadian government is going to listen or do you think this is just going to be completely ignored?
5: Well, Alberta unilaterally can't take itself out of the equalization system because it requires a constitutional amendment. Now we've killed your listening audience. We're into the <laughs> constitution so that would require um the uh, 7 of the 10 provinces and uh and what 60% i forget the precise formula at the moment uh of the population to agree to all of that so th- th- this is more overt political posturing that alberta will use to help in its negotiations with Ottawa for other funding uh, adventures and or pipeline projects. But it it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't mean equalization is going to end uh, because one province has had a referendum and a majority of the public likely say they don't think it should continue.
0: Now, Tim, that your point obviously is correct. However, I will say that I'm sure there are some people who are listening when you say, okay, they want to change the Constitution and will recall back in May, was it, when Quebec says, hey, we want to change the Constitution, we want French to be the official language, we want to be our own nation, and the Prime Minister said, sure, I got no problem with that. Initial reports, initial analysis says you can do that, and they're going to say, wait a second, why is Quebec able to make these adjustments to the Constitution? And then when Alberta says we want something done differently, the view is, yeah, no, you can't do that.
5: This involves money, and the other one involves language uh and and equally Quebec has other tools as provinces do. To um, your Bill 101, as you and I are old enough to know all about that and how that uh, required French as the first language in public spaces uh, in Quebec uh, to uh, to be enacted, and and it was. But but the comparison is an excellent one because effectively, what Alberta is trying to do through the equalization referendum that they've had and and other protests. That they've launched to say, look, you know, why is Quebec the only province that can push around Ottawa and get uh, special status? We kind of want it to. We want to be regarded as the Quebec of the West, that when we bark, you're afraid of our bite, and you'll find a way to accommodate us. It sounds simplistic, but that is effectively what is at play. Um, And going against equalization has long been a popular thing to do in Alberta. I mean, Scott, we can't have this conversation and not acknowledge that Jason Kenney's in some significant political trouble in Alberta. Lowest-ranked premier in the national surveys, all because of the management of COVID-19. So what better distraction to rally Albertans around the unfairness as they feel it and see it of the equalization formula?
0: But as you know, again, better than almost anyone, politics is not just about the mechanics of governing, it's about appearances. Correct. And, you know, out West, I find it hard to believe that if the government, if the federal government were to just ignore this or slough it off or say, this is silly, after giving ear to Quebec's grievances, you will further alienate an area of the country that already feels very alienated.
5: How many Liberal seats in Quebec? Uh, sorry, Do lots we, in Quebec. How many Liberal seats, Scott, in Alberta? I
0: think there's one now, isn't there? Two, two, double. okay, they two. Went double.
5: Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you I, I, you know, unfortunately, I don't think the federal government is too worried about more alienation in Alberta. Um, but the reality is, over time. There have been numerous discussions Newfoundland got into a big Donny Brook when Stephen Harper was Prime Minister with them uh, with the federal government over equalization because Newfoundland had an opt out that came with its offshore oil resources. Alberta may be trying to do something like that, so it may open the door to set aside negotiations for other projects um, so it's as i say it's not a it's not a uh, tool without some utility for Premier Kenny but it's not if you're listening today and you are caring about equalization doesn't mean tomorrow that it's going to change like the equalization formula to change and the process is going to take federal provincial meetings all manner of trade-off and uh, not going to happen in the, in the next little while but it signals alberta's desire to, to position itself as u- a unique western province that feels it needs uh, proper care and tending
0: Yeah. And I I agree with you on the, I don't know how many people woke up this morning going, boy, you, you know, equalization is what's driving my day today. I really, I I agree, but I think the issue here becomes more than equalization. I think this now becomes the argument about, about Canadian unity and about, is this a country that feels that we are all on an equal footing? And I think that's the argument that gets placed here. And, you know, there's already columns coming out and opinions coming out of Alberta that if the government completely ignores this and treats it like it was, you know, a bunch of kids at the table banging for dinner, and th- that this will lead to a separatist movement. I don't know if that's true, but, I, but yeah. it, there will be anger.
5: This, certainly there will be, but again, look, this Alberta's made more of it than, than other provinces have. Newfoundland was trying to get a change recently to the equalization formula, because for a very brief period of time because of our oil revenues. We were a payer, not a recipient. Guess who we were paying, Scott? You, you, you Ontarians were getting our money. I mean, we'd taken yours for a while, to be fair. Um, So, you know, the the whole argument of equalization, its whole genesis is that All Canadians, and this is the important part, should be able to receive the same level of services, whether it's in St. John's, Hamilton, Nanaimo, Edmonton. You go to a hospital, you go uh, to a government office, you get the same level of services, and nobody should be lesser than anybody else. And great Canadian fairness is the wealthier provinces would help the less wealthy. And as you achieve wealth, as Newfoundland did, you help the less wealthy, which in this case was Ontario. That was the whole genesis of the equalization formula. It probably still has a lot of merit, probably deserves a broader public explanation so people understand its, um, its utility, uh, but it probably could use a shake-up, too.
0: Tune in later today on 900 CHML <laughs> when Tim Powers offers a four-hour dissertation <laughs> On equalization across the country. Uh, I don't. And you we- can
5: call 1-800-LOBOTOMY afterwards <laughs> and get a free one.
0: Yeah, we, we hadn't run that idea by Tim before I mentioned <laughs> that, so we'll have to see if that happens. But uh, no idea if Scott Thompson is being preempted today yet. Uh, Tim Powers, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Bye.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Newfoundland and Labrador, you may have heard this, uh, are bringing in a soda tax, a pop tax next year. It's going to be the first province to target sugar-sweetened beverages. The finance minister out there said this, over half of Newfoundlanders and Labradorian residents aged 12 years of age and over have at least one chronic disease and many people live with more than one. The province's tax, if passed in the legislature, will be the first in Canada to specifically target sugar-sweetened beverages. So... Is this a good idea? Should governments be taxing things that aren't necessarily good for you? Or does this step on freedoms and say you are taking away some of the th- choices that I have and making it difficult to live the life I want to live? want to bring in Kate Park. She is a registered dietitian. And if I had to guess, having not talked to Kate yet before doing the interview today, Kate, I can bet I know which side of that argument you're going to fall on you already got a good guess on that. <laughs> I have a pretty good idea. Would I be right? Uh, you know, I, I, I think you
6: probably got the idea, but I mean, I'm, of course, I'm going to say it's a little more nuanced than just kind of like, yes, no, when it comes okay. to this situation, right?
0: <laughs> so explain, you know, and you know what? I think a lot of people probably just would have expected a dietitian to come on and say, absolutely, yes, for sure. So explain the nuance.
6: So I think attacks like this make sense because we do know that there's a significant link between sugary beverages and chronic disease and not just things like diabetes that people might instinctively think with sugars, but we also know it's connected to heart disease, kidney disease, liver diseases, um, and we're, we are seeing those things going up. And so a lot of people think, why why go after soda, right? It's a, it's a single item. It doesn't seem fair you're signaling this one out. But because of that significant link, we do know that taxes like this work in the past with other substances that we know uh, are not good for us. It's kind of being taken out of the same playbook as for cigarettes, right? We know when we started taxing those that it helped to significantly reduce intake. Um, but on its own, it's not an effective tool. So the For example, the revenue that's generated from a tax like this then needs to be used purposefully to help in other ways to get people to make healthier decisions, you know, subsidize healthier foods, improve education and access to healthier lifestyle choices. So on its own, not super effective, but as part of a bigger initiative, it can actually be very effective.
0: So many things you just said there I want to dive into. Let's start with the, (laughs) well, and it's true. I mean, you've hit on a whole bunch of things. Um, just made a bunch of notes while you were talking and I can barely read them because I was writing so fast. Um, but you said not effective necessarily on its own. I know they did this. They brought in a pop tax in the UK uh, three or four years ago. And what they found is that the reduction in the number of, there well, there was no real reduction in the number of pop bottles or gallons or whatever of pop purchase. So on that front, you would say, okay, this has not really worked because people are still drinking the same amount. They're just paying more.
6: It's interesting that you brought that one up because that was actually a slightly nuanced tax over there. So it wasn't just that they were taxing at the consumer level. They were actually taxing at the corporate level and they were taxing in different tiers. So you got taxed more depending on how much sugar was in the bottle. So for example, if your beverage had much more sugar in it, you got a higher tax. If you were sort of high in sugar, it was medium. And if there was just a little, it was lower. And while it didn't change the consumption of beverages at at a population level, what was interesting is it changed corporate behavior and that a number of companies actually started to make and market lower sugar versions of their beverages. So even though people were consuming a similar amount of soda, they were actually consuming more sodas that were lower in sugar as well. So there was actually a meaningful impact in that case.
0: You said also that why that some people are going to say well why just target pop and clearly you say there's this there's a connection But chocolate milk, for example, in this tax that that Newfoundland and Labrador is proposing is not there or infant formulas that have sugar in them or, um, you know, even uh, let me throw this one out because some of those may not have as much sugar as a pop would, but even going to the coffee shop and getting a triple, triple and throwing that much sugar into it. So, I mean, is this, is this a targeted thing? Is this, is this a start? How would you look at this? Because it seems there's a lot of other places you could have also an impact.
6: Yeah. And I think sometimes the soda tax title is a little misleading because it is going to be other sweetened beverages as well. And you're right, those ones are excluded. But I would say that the big difference between those two products is that a soda often has a significantly higher amount of sugar in it. Um, So for example, one can of typical soda has about 10 and a half teaspoons of sugar in it. And most people don't, really realize how sweet it is because we generally drink them quite cold and the fizz actually masks the sweetness. Um, uh, furthermore, those sort of beverages don't fill us up. So it's very easy to over consume them. I would challenge people that are listening to go home and take a cup and a half of water and mix 10 and a half teaspoons of water or sugar into it and try to drink it. It's sickly sweet. Um, and yet or just most drink one at room temperature
0: <laughs> or, or just drink one at room temperature. I suppose if what you're saying is, you know, if the, if the cold masks it open up a pop and just drink one as it is.
6: Yeah, that you'll also notice like the intensity of the sweetness is so much stronger, right? And so we're consuming a large amount of sugar in a very small amount of time. And that's where a lot of the health issues come. When we get that big surplus of sugar going into our body, our liver has to process that. And one of the ways it does that is producing these types of fats called triglycerides, which we know that as those levels increase, it can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease.
0: So what you are suggesting then is leave pop and only drink beer. Was that, did I get that? Was that the message that you were sending this morning? I just want to make sure I caught that.
6: That's an interesting shift. Not quite what I was aiming for.
0: <laughs> not exactly. If you're just tuning in, that's not what Kate said. I am just having some fun. No, don't, don't do that. Uh, Kate Park, dietitian. We're talking about the soda tax that is being introduced in Newfoundland and Labrador. Really appreciate you jumping in for a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this.
6: Uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes, she did not say to just turn to alcohol instead of pop. I want to make that clear. That was that was not her advice.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Lots of excitement yesterday when the Toronto Raptors made their return to Toronto after 600 days, something like that. Um, the headline in the Toronto Sun today from my next guest, rough start for young Raptors in their return to Toronto. Yes, I would say, I would say that might be the case. I turned off the TV when I think they were down by 30 points and went to bed because I need to get some sleep. Uh, Mike Ganter from the Toronto Sun, who was there watching the, well, whatever you want to call it, uh, joins us now. Mike, that was slightly anticlimactic.
7: <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was, the, uh, that was a, bit of the, uh, a bit of a dud to start. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I don't think anybody saw something that bad coming. I mean, there was a possibility they were going to lose for sure because you know, they, are, they are rebuilding but and they are very young but yeah nobody nobody expected the Washington Wizards to uh to beat them the way they did i don't think 98-83 was indicative of uh the uh competitiveness of the game it was rather one-sided
0: no that that final score they closed the gap a little that made it look almost respectable but yeah it was uh so is this all then because i i mean I, I read a story today as well talking about kyle lowry and getting going in miami and everyone down in miami is just loving kyle is this all kyle lowry not being there then are we blaming this all on the absence of kyle lowry no, not
7: everything. I mean that that's that's obviously part of it. I mean they have to learn to play without him and he's been a, such a big part of everything they've done for for so long. Um so yeah, that's they're going to have to adapt to that. Uh I I don't think that was the biggest part. I think the biggest part was just uh they're just they're just young and uh, their pieces don't fit yet. Um that's not to say they won't. Um but uh, they're not—they're—they're uh, they're not a unit. They're—they're <laughs> they're very, uh, very individualistic right now, and um, again, very, very, very young. And they mm-hmm. happen to come up against a team that. You know, has a bunch of guys who actually know how to play in this league, and uh, and uh, I think that was pretty much
0: the story last night. Well, it also I get, and this may be the same for every single team in the league. But if your shots from distance are not falling, you're going to have a hard time. I mean, they they every shot seemed to be missing yesterday, and I I don't know that there's a team in the league that's going to do well when that happens. No,
7: and and I mean, and more to your point, they, there's two guys that they rely on. They're going to rely on heavily all year. In terms of scoring, and that's Fred van Vliet and o g Ananobi. and I believe between the two of them there were something like eight for thirty seven for the night you i mean even Fred he came into the room uh well, quite quite late last night after the game and uh told us you know if o g and I are shooting like that, yeah, it's not gonna work, but having said that, uh they're a confident bunch, believe it or not, <laughs> and um I don't think you're going to see too many more nights where both Fred VanVleet and OG Anunoby can't, you know, can't hit their shots. That's just that's that 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 in itself is a rarity.
0: The fact that they were home, I mean, the home yeah. court advantage in the NBA may be bigger than in any other sport. I'm trying to think if there's a, a another sport that that somehow for whatever reason plays to the home court Light basketball, be, yeah,
7: it used to be the NFL, but even that's gone away. Like, there is no home, there is no home uh, home field advantage in the NFL anymore. But you're right; I, I think it's the NBA.
0: And so, and is that despite this, when you're there yesterday with the excitement, with everything else, is that going to play again? I mean, is that is that something that we should be expecting to come back, and that this is a huge advantage for them?
7: Oh, for sure, and it always has. Well, when I say always, it has been since they since they've been good, which is about the last. Well takeaway last year and then the five the five years before that. A real like a, a solid solid team. And I mean this fan base is extremely good. That um that pregame ceremony last night, which, you know, it was it was so hyped up. And i like, I mean, Fred Van Vleek um said after the game, he compared it to he said he hadn't heard it that loud since the ring ceremony. Uh after they won the championship. And um I mean he he's not wrong. It was it was extremely loud. But like you said, that's 600 days away from home and coming back and uh, and the, the, the they just poured the love out and uh uh, unfortunately uh they poured a lot out <laughs> <laughs> yeah the team didn't reciprocate
0: <laughs> they poured the love out and then the Raptors poured it down the toilet but um okay so that said there are still 81 games left True. uh I don't think we can gauge things into well I hope we cannot gauge things and nope. if, if we have you've got a long season ahead of you covering this team but I don't think that's fair what are the expectations for this team Did, you, you say rebuilding they are young yep. we keep hearing how young is pl- Are playoffs a reasonable expectation or not even oh. there yet
7: No, very much so. I mean, even this year, I mean, it it used to be you had to be in the top eight in the conference to make the playoffs. Now they've got the play-in game, and, you know, so there's an extra spot there, and you you can find your way in, and and this team is good enough to do it. They are. I mean, like I said, they're very young, but they do have, they've got a trio of returning vets. uh, Well, actually four if you count Goran Dragic, but they have a trio of returning vets, we're going to eat up the majority of the court time for this team in OGN and Fred Van Vliet and, and, uh, Pascal Siakam, who's still out with a shoulder while well, he's returning from a sh- shoulder injury. So those three guys, you get them together, get them in rhythm. They're going to be, they're going to be a decent team. They're not going to be a top of the pack conference team, but, you know, anywhere from sort of fifth, sixth down to eighth, ninth in the conference is completely realistic.
0: And they won't, no matter what happens, have to play LeBron in the playoffs until they get to the finals this year. So even though they won a championship, I think LeBron could be ninety-seven years old, and people would still say, as long as the Raptors don't have to play him if they get to the playoffs, things are fine. So. No,
7: that man, that man casts a shadow over this <laughs> team, and 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 will for until he retires. It's, uh, I mean, the, I don't know about you, but just that 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 him standing on the three-point line, basically twirling the ball on his finger, and then dropping a three
0: over. Will always live, yes. Yeah, sadly, dude. sadly. As much as the much. as much as the uh, Kawhi Leonard shot will live, uh, there's about eight LeBron shots that will also live and torment Raptors fans. Uh, you can read Mike Ganter day after day after day in the Toronto Sun. He'll be covering this team. Mike, really appreciate it today.